Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of 42 to Doomsday. I'm Rob. And I'm Mark. And tonight we're going to be talking about the Matt Smith era. The highs, the lows, the ins and outs, and the wonderful times we've all had with Matt. It's time for a Matt Chat. After a bit of an absence, Mark and I are back uh, in the in the shadow of Matt Smith's departure. Uh, before we talk about that and his era, as you're all aware by now, by the time you're listening to this, uh, the first official photo uh, of Peter Capaldi on on set uh, was released into the wild. Um, I'm currently looking at a uh, the Mirror.co.uk with uh, Peter Capaldi in uh, Matt Smith's uh, former costume, I suppose you'd say. Um, a lot of media um, mistook that for his actual costume, so wake up, people. We're actually watching the series. It was only a week ago when it was screened. So, Yeah, so he's, uh, he's standing next to General Louise Coleman in a vaguely familiar posture. Mark, does that, uh, or posed, Mark, does that ring a bell with you? It did, naturally, to be honest. Can you um, give me a clue? Well, thanks to Gary Gallat, uh, or Gillette, or even Gillette on Twitter. Or Gelati. <laughs> Gelati. I'm sure he tastes wonderful. It's uh, it's very reminiscent of a pose with uh, John Pertwee and Katie Manning, uh, even down to the, the positioning of the hand. Pete Capaldi is a true fan. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's very reminiscent of that with, with it, obviously, the Doctor pointing off into completely nowhere. He's probably pointing at the uh, the inefficiencies of uh, Moffat's scripts going to nowhere. Well, they appear to be holding something that vaguely resembles a script, but it's very thin and crumpled, so... Who knows? It could actually be a, a Moffat script. I'm just having a look at this Capaldi picture now, actually. Sorry, I just haven't, uh, haven't looked at it. But uh, oh, is this the uh, okay? This is the actual one, not the not the. It per- is per- uh, slightly Pertwee-esque, isn't it? Well, someone actually dragged up another photo of uh, Tom Baker and Liz Sladen, and it's that's a vaguely similar pose as well, though. Uh, but that, no, it's definitely is very Pertwee, very Pertwee. But uh, which whether that. Whether, you know, Moffat and Capaldi got together and said, let's have a bit of fun for the fans, and they just giggled like schoolgirls, which is entirely possible, which is entirely possible. And let's just uh, let's just get this, this, this picture out. So, yeah, it's just a bit of fun. The uh, latest, uh, or the new issue of DWM, I think, is out on Thursday. So I wonder if they're going to have the um, picture of Capaldi in his costume in that uh, publication. Maybe they're holding it over for that. I mean, they could do that, but then, you know, I'm sure DWM would love to have splashed it on the front cover. But then the BBC, being the BBC, would probably want to hoard that little that, that photo for themselves. Mm. It's, just a, it's just a question of who gets the photo out first. Uh, the paparazzi, the fan paparazzi... Or the BBC, and knowing the BBC, it'll either leak uh, ahead of time, or it'll just you know someone else will just get 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 in ahead of them. Or it leaked yesterday. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I mean the the article I've got here again is is from the Mirror.co.uk, which I think was the the uh, the website that leaked the news about the uh, wildly inaccurate information about the the uh, those missing episodes. But there's um they mentioned that Capaldi. Uh, dislocated his thumb whilst uh, filming for I think it's the three or the four musketeers and he popped it back in himself so if that's any indication to go by I've seen a man pop a dislocated kneecap back into place on television which looked absolutely horrifying and knowing how much pain you can get in your fingers um, 
doing that to your dislocated thumb, he's a hard man. He, he may be the hardest man ever to uh, pilot the TARDIS. They might not need a first aid officer on set anymore. He might just do it all himself. Ad hoc doctoring. So yeah, so the Capaldi era be- begins uh, has begun basically. They've um, they've recorded the first lines, I suppose. Obviously on set, uh, though it appears to be the first. Sorry, the, the first episode appears to be um, set in Victorian times. Uh, with the Pater Noster gang. Oh God! Can you tell me, Mark, what? Where does the name Pater Noster come from? I, my, La- I suppose it's Latin. I don't really know. Where did they, where, where they pull that name from? Why are they known as the Pater Noster gang? I can't honestly remember, and I really can't honestly care. I can't stand the three of them. So uh, you've asked the wrong person. I thought it, I, I thought it was a, a form of. Uh, Cooking spice, but anyway, no, probably right. Is it where they live? It's hard to say. It's uh, it's interesting that Moffat and and the production team have decided to go with familiar faces surrounding uh, Capaldi to to uh, I suppose in air quotes ease him into the role with familiar faces. But I don't know. It um, I'm I'm not particularly taken with the, with the trio myself. I think they Strax is far too comedy Sontaran it just goes too far it's it's ridiculous it undercuts everything I don't know I mean I suppose it's there for the kids to laugh at and you know um, good on them but I don't know he must be popular because he, he won a DWM award for best supporting actor or something like that so he's obviously resonating with somebody I was the recipient of a fan award many years ago and I can tell you now that they are very easy to stuff the ballots don't worry about it. <laughs> not that I'm saying that happened with DWM I'm sure DWM is a respectable organ of some repute, but, you know, come on. I would have actually got Kate Lethbridge-Stewart in the first episode myself. If the one I surround with familiar people, at least I could take her seriously. I would have just given him a cracking first episode. That's asking for too much. Oh, no regeneration trauma. He's into it. He's in, he's in costume, and then there's there's trouble to be to be fixed here. You don't need to introduce him. I mean, not, you know... 70% of the audience knows who he is straight off the bat. The rest of them have had three months to get used to him. I mean, mm. you know, it's not like it was 30 years ago where there's no internet and, you know, th- and all that sort of thing. But uh, he's on the set and he's, 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 uh, he's the doctor. So there you go. We look forward to uh, Series 8 with bated breath. Uh, do we know when Series 8 is coming out? I think it's autumn and with, a, with no split, a continuous run, I, b- I believe. So Ian Levine has nothing to gripe about, basically. I'm sure he'll find something, though. As uh, Rob has uh, stated in his introduction, we've uh, farewelled the 11th Doctor. So in this episode, we're going to take a look back at his era, the highs and the lows. Can you remember the, your reaction to when the, the news was announced that Moffat was becoming the new showrunner? I was very happy with the announcement. Um, on the one hand, it's a safe pair of hands, uh, someone who'd, who'd come up with uh, the new series, a regular writer, one of the, more, you know, one of the acclaimed writers. Uh, and, on the other, and again, um, on the flip side... Uh, he's a very good writer. Uh, the impression that I got uh, with his Doctor Who writing was that he, he knew how to write Doctor Who. He knew how to give it an appeal that cut across, you know, fans and new series, old fans and new series fans. So I was uh, really happy, and, and having sort of watched the stuff that he'd written way back into the early nineties, uh, Press Gang, Press Gang, for instance. I like Press Gang. I thought I it was great. Love Press Gang, um, and that's why I was really excited when I heard that he was writing for the new series under Russell T Davies. So yeah, I was very pleased. Uh, I thought it was a great choice. Uh, it was a logical choice, I think, um, because no one else uh, uh, who'd come up under Russell T Davies and the writing stakes uh, sort of came close to 
um, you know, having the quality. I, I thought he was a better rider than Davies anyway. So yeah, it was, it was, it was great news for me to, uh, to, to, to hear that he was uh, the, the man named as the showrunner. I mean, uh, Moffat did have uh, some showrunning experience before with uh, coupling, for example. Did you ever watch uh, Jekyll? Uh, I think I might have seen. A, uh, I have it somewhere on DVD. I just you know, like a lot of stuff, I haven't got around to watching it. I'd heard, I'd heard, I'd heard um, reasonable things about it, but I'd never watched it. When I heard the news, I was very enthusiastic about it to him taking. Over. I mean, I think if I remember some of the um, fan reactions to it, again, mostly positive. I think there was a bit of a concern over the silence in the library, Forest of the Dead, uh, two-parter in season four. You sort of overlook that. Blink, for example, was fantastic. Though well, he certainly he certainly has his tropes and his themes that he comes back to, and sometimes uh, you could argue that uh, what. Well, at that, I can understand why people were sort of worried about that because he sort of comes back to the same sort of ideas. He was coming back to the same sort of ideas again and again. But uh, I think the uh, the quality of his writing, his ability to create, you know, to create a, a good solid story and pop people with um, or populate it with you know good characters, solid mm. characters, uh, was something that was you know reasonably welcome. And uh, unlike Russell T Davies, who you know when, when given a free reign would you know just basically write whatever came into his head. At that time Moffat was, you know, fairly restrained from memory. Uh, and, you know, some of my favourite episodes from that era are, are Moffat scripts. And what what was it about Moffat as a writer that appealed to you in the, in the, in the Davies era? He didn't tend to overblow things. Just the writing just seemed on a different level, where, to me, RTD's level was slightly more juvenile. It was certainly more populist. I mean, in the term, when I say populist, I mean it was uh, it was something that would have, would have appealed to a, a broader range of the viewers. I mean, I mean, he'd come up through soaps and all that sort of thing, so he knew how to write f- towards that audience. Whereas I think Moffat's scripts at that time, anyway, were more considered. Um, they were more. It was a more conservative form of storytelling, I suppose. I mean, you know, he has his his ticks, his 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 writing ticks. He loves the convoluted. Uh, script writing he loves uh, there's a certain uh, smart assery to it if, if, if for want of a better word uh, but I mean that's that's that, that that's that runs right through his career I mean all the way back to press gang um, you know ostensibly he's writing for teenagers but I mean uh, you, you know men who middle-aged men like us can go back and really appreciate those scripts uh, and in actual fact a bit like Robert Holmes during the 70s he was writing, or they were writing towards a sort of the intelligent teenager, and I think Moffat sort of instinctively grasped that. Why Moffat's stories stand out more than than RTDs is because Moffat was only doing one story a year, and he had a lot more time to focus on it and get it right, as opposed to RTD, he was show running, uh, writing four or five scripts here, which is what Moffat's doing now, and that's why some of the criticism against mm. Moffat is it's like, well, you're doing too much. You can't run two shows, for example, and write four or five scripts because something is going to lose out. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, Russell T. Davies could write very good scripts. Um, I think the problem with Davies was, in some instances, the impression I got, and I think this is true, that he would wait or prevaricate and prevaricate and prevaricate and only when he was up against the deadline would he write and that uh, as when you do that i i think that you 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 lose the focus that you need to 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 get the script right and you don't leave yourself enough time to get it Mm. right basically um, and again, as you said, I mean, he was show running. Uh, he was uh, he was publicising the series. I think you know, the only person who rivals him for you know getting his face out in the media for the show's sake is J and T. Um, so there was many distractions there. And, and as you, said, I mean, apart from the fact that he was writing five or six scripts, 
he would be writing herd over everything else. And in some cases, rewriting them. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, some of the... I mean, Russell T. Davies, and this is not what we should be talking about, but a single story like Midnight is pure brilliance. I mean, from, from minute one to the end, there is not a wasted word. It, 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 it builds atmosphere, it builds tension, it all just follows beautifully. And when, you know, when he's focused like that, it's wonderful. It's just, you know, throwing everything and the kitchen sink at something like the stolen earth or uh, the end of time or something like that. It's just uh, this this idea that bigger is better is not right. As you say, uh, Stephen Moffat had time to focus on, what, one or two scripts per year? And more or less, all of them were fantastic, I think. All of them were really good. I mean, he was blessed with having you know, a, a skilled and experienced production team around him, people who, uh, you know, in the lead roles who could, you know, read the lines, you know, do mm. the acting and, and, and make the script come to life. But I mean, you know, without the script, you've got no episode. So yeah, I definitely, you know, was really excited to see what he would bring to the table uh, when he took over from uh, Russell T Davies. And of course, when he came in, not only was he the new showrunner, but he had uh, Matt Smith uh, as the new Doctor. Can you cast your mind back to the, your reaction when you heard it was an unknown 26-year-old? In order, flabbergasted, just angry for some reason. And then uh, some months later when I actually saw him on screen, embarrassed at my you know, overreaction. I, I just I couldn't get my head around why they would go with, um, I mean, not inexperienced, but you know, someone basically at the start of their career. Because you know, if you got that casting wrong... You were settled with him, and I mean the, the the fate of the show, you know, would rest in the ability of the new lead to not only you know keep the audience that uh, you know the tenant and Davies had built up, but carry it forward. And I was just sitting there thinking, who is this callow-looking youth who has very little experience from what I could see, and why why is it impossible to get someone you know more middle-aged who's got the experience? I mean, the theory going around at the time was that the the, the frenetic um, production schedule would kill a man over mm. 40 well you know get stuffed frankly um uh that just sounded like a very weak excuse to have another pretty face to uh, appeal to the um to, to all the screaming 16 year old girls which you know is probably offensive to all the screaming 16 year old girls yeah so that was my but of course i saw him on the screen and um i came to see the error of my ways uh but you know we'll get on to what i what we think about you know matt smith down the track but uh, what did you think when you heard about his casting it was a major case for me of what the WTF to be honest mm-hmm. but you know then you slowly realise that well Moffat's a professional they've got casting directors in place these decisions aren't made lightly it's not like he's gone to a wedding and entertained the crowd <laughs> and got the job there's obviously rigorous screen tests um, and that's how he got the role. Well, Moffat himself said, "Yeah, Moffat himself says that he was hoping to. He was looking for someone older, and then uh, Matt Smith was the second one who came in for a reading, and that was it. I mean, they basically found their man. So you know, as you said, he's a professional. He's 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 been the showrunner on a number of you know high profile series. Uh, he's been around for twenty years. I mean, you know, he would know a leading man when he saw it. And if if Matt Smith gave a great reading." Well, you know, you can only go with the talent in front of you. When they sort of said, oh, he's been in a TV show called Party Animals. So that's the great thing about, uh, I suppose, a show like Doctor Who where they say this person's appeared in another production. You go and seek that out. I mean, that's what I usually try and do. Um, So I sought out Party Animals and watched it. He was great in it. I really enjoyed his performance in it. But it was also a good piece of television, which also helped as well. 
Um, and then mm. when I saw his first scenes at the end of time, yeah, I said, fine, I have no problems now. Just in that, in that couple of uh, short scenes, he just nailed it. He made that the previous 20 minutes of waffle and twaddle um, bearable. Did uh, Moffat write that last very last bit? I think, I think Moffat did. I remember watching The Confidential and um, once they'd done that scene, you see uh, RTD and Julie Gardner uh, walk out of the of the studio and I thought I heard somebody uh, shout out, don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out. And then you see Moffat and Piers, uh, I was going to say Piers Morgan, but Piers, <laughs> what's his name? Piers Wenger, whatever his name, he was only there for a year. Uh, you see them sitting down and watching uh, Matt do his initial stuff, which must be fairly daunting for him. And even when the whole set's collapsing around him, he's swallowing and choking on foam. He still gives a fantastic performance. So when I saw that first scene, I said, yeah, he's fine. Yeah, I, I tend to... I know it's a bit of a tradition now that um, they let their new Doctor have his 20 seconds of, of, of you know, um, introduction, mm. which probably has nothing really to do with the eventual portrayal. Um I don't take anything from that indicative of, you know, what it's going to be like. I mean, you know, Capaldi is leaping about, screaming about the colour of his kidneys, which is completely nonsensical. Um, (laughs) And I don't take that as an indicator of what we're going to get uh, later on this year. And I didn't take anything away from Matt Smith's, uh, you know, 20 seconds of performing under literal fire. I think it was his his, his actions he was doing. I just remember him doing his thing with his hands going, you know, ooh, on, on his side of his side of his head and doing these little mannerisms. My fears were allayed. Mm. I think I was still uh, flying the flag of rage, but uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll get we'll, we'll get to when I woke up and smelt the roses and just realised what an idiot I'd been. So thankfully I hadn't gone onto the internet, I don't believe, and screamed blue murder about what Moffat was doing to the series. That was later on, wasn't it, really? That was later on. So um, Matt Smith is cast and, and, and Stephen Moffat takes over. Uh, I think what we're going to do is just uh, have a bit of a Captain Cook's tour through um, his the uh, the following three or three and a bit years. Uh, so uh, season uh, series five comes along and uh, Matt Smith uh, is introduced proper in the eleventh hour. Um, what did you take away from um, uh, from? I mean, it's an important episode, so we probably should talk about it a little bit. But what did you think of the eleventh hour? I still think today it's a great opening story for a Doctor. I, I think mm-hmm. it's fairly, so- it's very solid. It's got a nice little fan wanker at the end of it. But um, yeah, I really, I really, I still enjoy that. I can actually put that on. As I said, I don't, I don't go back and watch much uh, new series stuff, but I could happily put that on again and watch it for his performance. I, I still don't understand. What was the whole Prisoner Zero thing? Has that been resolved yet? I can't remember. Uh, well, if it wasn't resolved in um, the time of the Doctor, it's never going to be resolved. That's all right. That's all right. Everything else was tied up in a sweet little bow. <laughs> Under a garbled, yeah, nonsensical uh, speech with lots of overblown music. But we're not there yet. Let's just go back to Series 5. So, yeah, 11th hour, um, great. Right, you, what did you think of it? Yeah, I thought it was a very strong debut uh, for Matt Smith. Um, it... I mean, it introduced all the elements to his uh, his his first ser- uh, series. They call yeah. it series, don't they? His first series. I mean, obviously, uh, Amy and Rory were there in the background, and uh, and uh, you know, it's a, it's a good showcase for Matt Smith's uh, abilities. And of course, that bit at the end where you know all the previous ten faces. Or well, where was um where was John Hurt's face? Let's just move on. All the two faces for David Tennant, Doctor. <sighs> I'm sure somebody will put up on YouTube. I demand someone do something with CGI, something tricky. They'll retcon it in. Yeah, but uh, I thought it was a, I was a very strong debut, and uh, you know I think uh, Moffat 
um, you know, I mean, because it, it can't be. I mean, on the one hand, it can't, it's it's daunting, I suppose. But on the other hand, it must be a you know just sort of a vindication, exhilaration that you're writing the introductory uh, story for a new doctor and you're the man in charge. Mm. And you know uh, that that first series, I think it's a very confident series. Um, there there are a couple of duff episodes in it, victory of the Daleks, and. Um, uh, but I think overall it's it's a it's a it's a strong series and it, it it really it's a confident series. I mean the production crew around them are, are very experienced, but testament to uh, Smith's you know acting chops and Moffat's confidence in himself that more or less series five comes comes off. Uh, the the one thing I have a problem with with new series uh, Doctor Who and particularly under I suppose Stephen Moffat is the it's, it's just this decision to impose an arc um, on each season. Or series, it it just I don't know. I find it on the one hand uh, an artificial con- constriction to put on the series, and uh, and limiting as well. I mean, I, I would like the, the series to um, to return more to a more anthology based uh, setup, where you know the Doctor and friends turn up, have a face a problem, they resolve it in, in an adventurous and exciting and humorous way, and then they move on to the next one. I just tend to find the arcs, as I said before just an artificial construct you get a little portion of each episode is devoted to it and it sort of builds and builds and builds and i just i find it distracting and i find it annoying and i think the this you know the the arcs that moffat put in place uh, over his tenure i don't know just detracted a, a little from from the era do you think that audiences now are expecting some sort of story arc in a lot of the shows they watch so if they actually went back to a more anthology base which is what i would prefer personally do you think people go oh what are we looking out for now and then sort of be disappointed that there's actually nothing to look out for well i mean i can understand you you having an overall arc on uh, shows that are you know in air quotes real life i mean you look at something like breaking bad um, you, you ha- you're depicting the family life of a man, you know, up to his neck in the drug trade. But it is a story of a, a man's progress through life. And I mean, it's something like Game of Thrones or, um, you know, uh, uh, Ray Donovan. These are depicting families moving through time. Whereas, and, and that you, you can understand why they've adopted that sort of more no- novelistic approach, uh, because that makes sense. But if you're looking at an, what Doctor Who, which is an anthology series where you know you travel through time, you, you're, you're visiting different places each episode, I, I, I think that um, doesn't doesn't really make any sense. Um, so I, I would hope. Well, I know they're not going to. God damn it! But I would love I'd love for them just to abandon it. And I think just looking um, at something like you know season a uh, series seven or the first half of season series seven. Where it's Asylum of the Daleks, Dinosaurs in a Spaceship, A Town Called Mercy, The Power of Three, and uh, The Angels Take Manhattan. There, from my memory, is that they're, um, you know, apart from introducing um, uh, Clara uh, in Asylum, um, there, there's very little in the way of an arc, unless I've completely got that wrong. And I think, I think, and I know there's a lot of detractors for Series Seven, but I, I actually enjoy all of it. Uh, and I know in the second half they sort of impose that um, you know the great intelligence and you know who 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 is Clara, but you know I, I find those particular elements of that arc in the, in the second half of series seven really superfluous. I mean I didn't really give a stuff who Clara really was, and uh, the great intelligence really didn't captivate me. You know his machi- his plans and machinations. I was really more interested in the stories. I mean, you talk about the story arc. So, do you think Moffat is actually a better, i.e., just writes a script out than actually an architect of a story arc that doesn't, in, in some cases, doesn't pay off? I don't think, for example, 
the series five. I agree with you. Actually, I think it's a, it's consistent like the, the two thousand and five series. I, st- I think those two are consistent. Yes, they've got the daft episodes, but they still flow through, and to me, are still quite hugely enjoyable. But I just don't think the arcs in series five to series six, especially, just don't they don't hold together. The payoff for me is not totally there. And if I have to go to Wikipedia to understand a, a script, then maybe it's just me, but. God help the viewers at home, but obviously they love it, so they're watching it. I mean, I'm, I've got the list up here to just to assist me with what I'm talking about. On Wikipedia? On Wikipedia. I mean, I'm not, I don't have the individual entries open, of course, but I'm looking at the stories. Uh, like you say, Series 5 is, is, is consistent. I mean, the, the standouts for me are the 11th Hour, the two-parter, uh, The Time of Angels and Flesh and Stone, Amy's Choice, Vincent and the Doctor. I think Vincent and the Doctor is is easily the high, high point of that, of that series. It's just so... It is, you know, so moving and... and, and just some, some brilliant performances from the people from the leads involved. It's just wonderful. When that aired, a friend of mine rang me up because I think we know who the new showrunner for the series is. And I said, "Who?" He goes, "Richard Curtis." I said, "Oh, come on!" I said, "There's no way we can have at the end of every week some love actually sort of ending with you know big romantic music playing up." Every you couldn't do that for every week, but I think for that episode, it was absolutely brilliant. I still, I, I agree. I think it's a fantastic episode. It wouldn't be Doctor Who if it was that every week, but just for just for that you know those forty odd minutes, it was it, that was really really a, just excellent. It was wonderful. But you had the the arc running through it, and it was the the, the crack. Um, and you have the Pandorica opens and the Big Bang, and you just sit there, and I'm not a stupid person, but I was just scratching my head thinking, well, is this it? And that was the sort of, that was the feeling that I was left with all the way through these uh, these arcs, and, and this is not a, you know, a, a, me just, or us, aiming it solely at, at Moffat, because Russell T. Davies did this, mm. and uh, his his arcs were no no better personally just as nonsensical and i mean the bad wolf thing made absolutely no sense in terms of the you know time travel and paradox i mean but um i you know you you sort of think well is moffat doing the arc thing because he knows the audience wants it or is he does he lack the confidence to move aside from that uh, and do his you know do his own thing put his own stamp on it i mean the, the whole arc thing is not you know not the be all and end all and i suppose we shouldn't focus on it too much but um, as I said before, I think it's an artificial constraint on the series. And as you've said, the payoffs... Don't work, yeah. They don't work. I mean, you look at the Pandorica opens and the Big Bang, you know, blah. You look at... I mean, I, I like uh, a lot of epi- a number of episodes in Series 6. I think The Impossible Astronaut is a fantastic opener. Yes. Even better than The Eleventh Hour. And, you know, something like The Doctor's Wife, which is, again, a story that you can only do once off. Mm. But then you get to bilge like a good man goes to war and let's kill Hitler which commits the cardinal sin of not actually really featuring Hitler. <laughs> I mean, you know, come on, come on. Uh, stories like Night Terrors, The Girl Who Waited, The God Complex. I mean, they're not, those three episodes just there sort of redeem Let's Kill Hitler. But then you get to um, The Wedding of Riversong. And honestly, honestly, what is going on there? What is going on there? I mean, it's the the so-called arc for that series is is, is wrapped up, and you know, I, I think I've said this before. Moffat gets so caught up in his own cleverness that he forgets to write a story. Mm. It's just a mishmash that makes no real sense. And again, where's the payoff? You know, we're meant to be captivated by the fact that River Song and the Doctor are meant to get you know getting married. I find that just ridiculous. Is it ridiculous because of the established character of the Doctor that you think he doesn't get married? Or is this ridiculous in terms of storytelling? It just doesn't make sense. I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I'm an old fart, you know, and I don't see the Doctor as being a romantic lead in the slightest. But, you know, that's the world we live in at the moment and, and, and people appreciate that and blah, blah, blah. 
but you know it just doesn't work for me and I don't um, you know no disrespect to the actress who plays River Song Alex Kingston Alex Kingston but you know I just don't buy any chemistry between her and Matt Smith at all you know at all and look I know that there are people who appreciate her for being a strong woman and and, and more or less Stephen Moffat you know is very good at writing strong female characters though what the hell he's done wrong with Clara I'm not entirely sure but you know I just don't buy the fact that River Song is someone who is you know an engaging or entertaining figure. I think she's more a projection of Stephen Moffat, who sometimes comes across as very smug and very, you know, a big know-it-all who just wants to put it all over people. I just, you know, I did not enjoy the winning of River Song at all. I think River Song was actually overused in uh, series six. Well, that's the that's the that's the arc that he built. That's the arc that he built for himself. Yeah, it's more like the arc of the Covenant, really. Oh, well, that all turned out bad for the Nazis. There's another link to Hitler. You have. You have Hitler. You don't just stick him in a cupboard. Do you think you are kidding, Mr. Hitler? If you think old England's done. So we jumped onto series six, uh, and you've mentioned, you know, impossible astronaut day of the moon. You know, Doctor's wife was great. Plenty of rumours running around that uh, Moffat did quite a few rewrites, rewrites on that episode, which is why that's so good and Nightmare and Silver is so bad. But there's actually quite a few low points in Series 6, in my opinion. Curse of the Black Spot, Rebel Flesh, almost people. Let's kill Hitler. Closing time, the degeneration of the Cybermen continues. I mean, the Curse of the Black Spot is, it's very pedestrian. But, you know, it, um, and it's a little bit like, um, a little bit like uh, Moffat's two-parter in the first series, where the uh, the nanotechnology isn't actually being bad. It's only doing what it, what it needs to do. And there's a little bit of that in the Curse of the Black Spot with the medical... Uh, technology there doing what it needs to do and seemingly seeming to be bad about it but and i i mean i know the rebel flesh and the almost people doesn't have, don't have a lot of fans but i, I quite like the setting uh, even if the uh, the execution leaves a little bit to be desired i'll just be controversial there and closing time i found it i found it a little bit of fun but you're right i mean the cybermen have been really poor well they've never been really greatly served by the series but in the in in, in the new series they've been absolutely terribly served and uh, and yeah, and and closing to I, I don't know why they can't get it right. I mean, it's just a no brainer, but they just they just can't get it right for some reason. No, they just need to go back and look at some of uh, like Earthshock. I mean, Earthshock gets a bit of stick. I think I mentioned it before. I think just remake Earthshock. Well, you 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 can go two ways. You can go action adventure and remake Earthshock, or you can go body horror and either do um, spare parts from Big Finish, or you even go back to the Tenth Planet and you look at those sort of you know more human Cybermen. Uh, with you know hands exposed and all that sort of thing, and you go with that. I mean, the horror of the Cybermen is there to see. They've they've deliberately made a choice to you know basically remove all their humanity to survive. And you you sort of ask the question, well, is that really surviving, mm. or is it just existing? You know, um, but they for whatever reason they just can't do it. They they love having their little stompy soldiers running around. And you know, as you mentioned, the nightmare in silver is just you know the the, the hint on the quality is uh, is in the title, folks. It's a nightmare. In silver. And it's gold-plated nightmare. Oh, God. Where was Adric with his little gold star to stop everything? But anyway. One thing I noticed with Series 6 was that, you know, the good man goes to war, finishes off saying, we're going to get your baby back. And then, let's kill Hitler. It just keep, carries on with the fun and the hygiene. If you're going to set up a premise like that, I'm going to go and find your baby, and there's no there's no urgency or there's no immediacy about actually trying to find the baby, that, that actually really struck me as a parent... 
and I'm probably mm. reading too much into it. Yeah, I just think, why would they sort of forget that so quickly? Well, there's your problem with your arc because mm. if you, you know, if you don't adhere to it, if you step away from it, people are going to pick up on it and go, well, you know, you're not being serious about it. Um, mm. And and that's the problem there. And I know it's a TV show, and I shouldn't get carried away with it, which I understand that. But I just, as a viewer as well, as a parent, going, I'm going to get your baby. Okay, where is it? Well, I mean, and that was a common complaint for that that that, that latter half of that series. Mm. That the responses from Amy and, well, Amy in particular, anyway, were were not the sort of response you'd expect from a parent. Uh, but again, it's well, I mean, I know it's, we give it an easy pass by saying it's a TV show. But if you, as a TV show, set up this scenario. At least, I suppose, you know, do the right thing. Give the audience credit and follow through. Don't pike it for, you know, something shiny in the corner over there. Like, let's have Hitler, who we put into a cupboard. Sorry, I can't let that one go. But in in uh, in, in that seasons or series, uh, uh, p- positive side, Night Terror is the, the girl who waited in the God Complex. I love them to bits. They're, Fantastic, they're episodes, yeah. Yeah, they're episodes I can go back to. I mean, Night Terror is in my wheelhouse. It's a scary thing. Uh, dolls and all that sort of thing. The girl who waited is just... just it's um, it's just really well executed, and the choice at the end is you know, is heartbreaking in a sense. And the god complex again, you know, it's a base under siege sort of thing, and I love that sort of thing. Mm. Actually, one sort of one thing I, I I should have mentioned right at the very start is that when Matt Smith came on board, he basically didn't know what Doctor Who was, uh, is, is my understanding. So they handed him a whole bunch of episodes to watch. Go away and watch this, and uh, as luck would have it for all of us who, who love Patrick Troughton, he, he watched uh, The T- Tomb of the Cybermen and basically, as I understand it, based his performance on Troughton. So luckily nobody handed him Twin Dilemma then or Ty and the Rani. Given the fact that Colin Baker's <laughs> era was completely skated over during that uh, confidential where Matt Smith was uh, announced. Wasn't it? Yeah, that was, that was never going to happen. It was like a quick flash... And then there was another quick flash of McCoy, and I think I remember RTD calling McCoy an exquisite jewel or something like that, and it went straight into Paul McGann, who got more, even though he's on television for less time, he got more coverage on The Confidential. Poor Colin Baker cannot take a break. No. We love you, Colin. Crocs and all. Crocs and cricket. But yeah, so he, he took on uh, Patrick Troughton's, uh, well, uh, he was inspired anyway, so the bow tie and the, the, a bit of the hand gestures and all that sort of mm. thing, and the ability to, the ability to, I mean, in his performance, I mean, you know, he's a young, he's, he's a young man. He looks very young. He's got a very distinctive face, though. He's not conventionally handsome, uh, Matt Smith. But he had the ability to portray someone young, probably a bit too much twirling around for my, my liking, but also someone who felt the weight of... The world on their shoulders. The, the, the weight of the, the universe on their shoulders, mm. really. 1,200, 1,300, 1,400 years of existence and horror and and, uh, and and that sort of thing. So, And I sometimes felt that um, Matt Smith's performance was always always a plus and it was you know you, it was always better than, than than the scripts that he had he's like Davison in that respect absolutely Davison got served up with some turkeys um, but his performance always lifted it and the same with Matt Smith he was served up some turkeys but his performance saved it absolutely I, I can't I can't agree more than what you've said there I mean I mean as we've said I mean look let's kill Hitler is rubbish but Matt Smith is all—he's always watchable. He's always watchable, and that helps because of his physical. The reason of that is because of his physicality. I think more as much as his his, his, uh, his acting ability. So the thing with uh, series six and series seven was that they were split. Uh, in season six, I thought that she worked okay. 
But Series 7, I felt it didn't work. It disrupted the whole flow of the narrative of that season. Um, I'm glad they're getting rid of the whole split series um, predicament, but we still really don't know why it was done. I mean, some people are saying it was budget cut. Some people are saying it was because Moffat's workload was too big, or we don't really know the full details of why that decision was made. What about uh, what did you think of all the uh, splits over two years and things like that? Look, at the end of the day, it didn't really hurt the ratings, did it? I mean, I think people in the UK are used to short-running series of you know certain uh, certain shows hmm. so they, i mean unlike in america where you know on, on, the, on the mainstream networks you've got seasons of 22 episodes so you know in in, in the uk it's three episodes like with sherlock or it's six six episodes yeah. six episodes or if you, i mean if you've been watching luther i think it's, it's even down to what three or four or in the last three. couple of years yeah exactly so people are used to that um and in terms of doctor who um i suppose people got used to 13 episodes and then you know they split it but the audience stayed there. I mean, one of the one of the things about um, the whole uh, Matt Smith uh, Moffat era is that yes, uh, David Tennant had spectacular ratings, but they've only uh, the, the the popularity of the show uh, in in the UK anyway only a little, it came off the ball just a little bit. Mm. So Matt Smith was getting you know six, seven, eight million. Though latterly, you know, with um, the Day of the Doctor and, and Time of the Doctor, he was they were hitting you know ten million plus, which is fantastic for them. Yes. So in that sense, um, it didn't hurt the ratings. But in terms of, you know, you're sitting down and there's an arc going on and you're trying to, you know, trying to follow the flow of the narrative, it's a disaster. It's an absolute disaster to impose an artificial uh, stop on that sort, of, uh, that sort of narrative. So, I mean, you get to, I think it's a, a good man goes to war and, you know, you've got on this point where, oh my God, you know, River Song is Amy and um, Rory's daughter and then let's break for... Uh, um, eight months on. or whatever it was I can't remember how many months it was uh, I think we're actually going to uh, have to backpedal on that because it was um, it, it was actually two months it was a two month break if you look I'm looking at the air dates here mate if you look at um, the uh, it screened opened in uh, 23rd of April 2011 Good Man Goes to War is 4th of June and then there's July and then there's August so it's almost it felt more than that it, it actually it, honestly it did feel more than that because I remember when they did the, um, the sort of the trailer I think it was at the end of Good Man Goes to War where there's a uh, is it a skeletal hand mm. and I thought oh bugger we're going to have to wait a long time but just apologies to our audience but I mean it's only two months two and a half months but as you say it felt like a Bloody long time. Okay, but then, you know, you move to Series 7 and there's definitely... A big gap. Uh, definitely a big gap. So, Angel Takes Manhattan, Angels Take Manhattan, uh, screens 29th of September 2012, and then The Bells of St. John is the 30th of March 2013. Though, I suppose in the sense there that they um, they tied up the Pons story with Angels, and then uh, they introduced Clara, um, sort of, well, the second Clara, in, in The Snowmen, and, and then they had another gap of about three or four months. But... Um, I just I just think that splitting it up like that hurts that hurts the narrative a little bit, um, and you, you you so you're building up and building up to a, a finish, and then you stop halfway through for well two months or six months, and it's just very frustrating because you've got a split series and a shorter run of episodes. There's so much focus on those that any sort of clunkers stick out like a sore thumb, as opposed to if they're spread in a 13 episode run. Yes, they're clunkers, but they're hidden amongst a whole lot of other jewels. I mean, it does really matter when you're watching them on DVD anyway. Or Well, that's it, isn't it? Series 6 and Series 7, they'll be even on DVDs, watch them on continuous fly, but uh, as a narrative on the television uh, terrestrial broadcast, 
uh, I don't think that split was effective. And in fact, Series Seven is actually the only series of the uh, of the, the the reboot that I want to actually go back and watch in its entirety. Yeah, well, I'm just looking at the list of stories now, and um, apart from Rings, which I feel sorry for Neil Cross. Um, <laughs> Apart from Rings and uh, well, Neil Nightmare and Silver, I don't feel sorry for Neil Gaiman. That, that that's a very strong series, actually. That may may be one of the, maybe the strongest series since the show came back. So why didn't it work? Why were people so focused on, um, I suppose, tearing it asunder, especially that the last, uh, the series seven B. It wasn't until you know the um, name of the Doctor and people started getting really excited about it, and probably Cold War as well because the Ice Warriors are back. But why didn't why didn't that work? Is it just that split just just did so much damage to it? I suppose we have to make the distinction again between the general viewing public who just continues to embrace Mm. the series and uh, a subset of vocal fans who, um, you know, like, well, not like to complain, but feel aggrieved enough to complain. I think overall Series 7, like I said, is is the strongest series uh, since since it came back. Um, And, I mean, you you look at stories like uh, Asylum, Dinosaurs, uh, The Power of Three, uh, what have we got here? Cold War, Hyde, Crimson Horror, um, they're all really good stories. And I mean, the only clunker is Rings. And you can't, I suppose, fault them for trying something different. Neil Cross had to write this basically, you know, very quickly. And it showed. Uh, sadly, it showed. But I mean, it's more than redeemed by Hyde, which I think is probably the best episode, uh, one of the two or three best episodes in, in Matt Smith's tenure. Um, but, um, yeah, I just... I think there's there's been a growing backlash... A, Again, amongst a sub subset of fans, there's been a growing backlash against Moffat, and I think in part it has to do with the uh, you know the, the the contrived nature of the arcs and the lack of a payoff. I think some of it is to down to what is where, where is you know Clara's character, what, what's what's going on there, what's gone wrong with that. Some of it has to do with the very low key begin uh, beginning to the two you know the fiftieth anniversary. Though why that would necessarily be, you know, Moffat's fault, I'm not entirely sure. But I mean, he, he's the focal. I mean, you know, the BBC is a nebulous organisation over there. No one is going to criticise Matt Smith because we all love him. Mm. But uh, you know, Stephen Moffat is is a figure that we can uh, or fans can take pot shots at, um, you know, because he's more than capable of you know giving it back. So people are sort of feel provoked to. Dish it up. Every producer from Hinchcliffe onwards were getting pot shots. I mean, Hinchcliffe was getting pot shots from the Mary Whitehouse. Williams was getting pot shot by fans all the way through. So nothing's really changed, I suppose, because I got the internet to um, post on forums and they think it's a backlash. Uh, Ian Levine's come out today and said that uh, on his Twitter feed that uh, you know he does not uh, support this latest uh, anti Moffat rumblings. Did you see that today? I did see that today. Um, as with many of Anne's pronouncements, I'm constantly surprised and amazed. Uh, leave it at that. I think. I think. I think. Most of all, it may. Well, maybe. Now, I might be projecting my, my own opinions on this. That maybe Moffat has stayed too long. That maybe Moffat uh, should have gone out with Matt Smith. Matt Smith. And that the lack of any, uh, uh, you know, movement from him from the showrunner position has made some people just a bit cranky about him. Uh, and again, you know, he, he's the he is staying on, and Matt Smith is moving on, and um, he, he's just there to be. He's just the focus of some people's ire. And and don't forget that there was talk that Matt Smith was left. Sorry, left the role a little unwillingly. That he he did actually say at one point that. 
um, he'll, he'd be back in 2014. And then in very short order, uh, he was out and Capaldi was in. So maybe there's a bit of grievance there as well that, you know, the, the beloved Matt Smith is out and, 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 and Moffat is still there. And of course, some people are just, they, they, they've had enough of, of Stephen Moffat's storytelling because as I alluded to earlier, he has his tropes and his, and his themes that he comes back to. Yeah. And there's only so many, so many times that you can go back to the well. Yeah. I, think, I think in terms of the angels, he has, he has revisited them so many times that he's basically stripped them of all real menace. Uh, and the, what they are just sort of uh, is is modified every time they appear to you know just to suit the story where they in blink they are just a their basic premise was a really strong basic premise and a really you know scary uh, premise and it's just been diluted uh, with each return and of course he go I mean the same thing the silence is uh, the same sort of idea a creepy alien figure that has one characteristic that makes them you know memorable uh and you know he's it's, they're just a sort of a mirror of the angels and uh, it's the same sort of things over and over and over again and people get a bit stale but what he's doing is not dissimilar to what's happening in hollywood now where they get an idea and does really well and pump out 13 sequels it's exactly what he's doing now as you said with the angels where he'll just keep wheeling them out but every time they it's like you know the, the police academy one started off strong and by the time we got to police academy seven didn't want to touch it with a barge pole oh, absolutely and i mean i suppose with with the show being you know the production side of it being a bit of a treadmill you would understand why you know moffat would go back to a tried and true uh feature you know mm. and, and bring them back because you know a they're popular b they're easy to write for you can construct a story around them uh and uh and you know what you're doing with them so i mean i can understand that but yeah, there's there there is well, you know, I suppose it depends on how Capaldi goes now. If Capaldi is a success, then you know everyone will love Stephen Moffat again wholeheartedly and unanimously. I think Moffat will just do uh, the first series of Capaldi, then he'll go. What do you th- what do you think about the criticism about the character of Clara? Is it war- is it warranted? Some of it is. I've read a few you know comments posted on Twitter and things like that saying you know she's got no character. Uh, why is she there? And I know, I know, I know. We've had I've had conversations with you and some other people that we know. You know, so what's the purpose of Clara? Um, apart from you know resolving that uh, the great intelligence interference and in, in the name of the Doctor, I really still don't know what she's there for. And this is not not no um, disrespect to Jenna Coleman because I think she's fantastic. Uh, I just don't get much out of the character at all. Yeah, and again, you know, no disrespect to the actress herself because I think with she. With what she's given, she does her very best, and I th- I thought her um her performance in Time of the Doctor was was particularly appealing. Mm. Um, I mean, she's very easy on the eye. I mean, there's no denying that. But I I, I thought towards at, at the end of the story, um, where she you know helped resolve the situation and then sort of meeting the Doctor again just as he's about to die, I thought that that really I I I responded you know really warmly to that, and that's and that's down to the actress working with the material that she's given, but. Uh, I thought that in Asylum of the Daleks and the Snowman, um, that she uh, Moffat did a, a far better job of depicting, you know, uh, her as a character. I think she what's happened in in the, in, in uh, the second half of series seven has been uh, just a bit disappointing for her. But um, I'm hoping that uh, with a, a contrasting lead in in in, in Capaldi. That you know Moffat and the other writers pick up on that and 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 do something with it to give her a bit more spark, uh, because I think there's a little bit of there's a little bit lacking there, and uh, that's a real pity actually. It's a real pity because I think uh, 
if they don't take this opportunity in Series A's, there'll be I'll I'll regard her tenure as a bit of a lost opportunity, which again is no slight against her, you know, uh, Jenna Coleman personally. Are you talking missed opportunity uh, like Martha Jones, or just as in? Just the character itself. Well, I, I suppose there's an opportunity to do something interesting with any character who comes along in the series. But, you know, I mean, I mean, the only sort of distinctive things about her uh, were that she was a nanny to a bunch of to, to two annoying kids. And then she became a teacher. Um, and also she's got a sort of a slightly dysfunctional family setup, which is nothing new for the series. But now that they've introduced her, the wicked stepmother, um, <laughs> um, um, they, I, I look forward to Peter Capaldi putting her in her place. Mark, one of the features of the new series is the uh, is the Christmas episode, the yearly Christmas episode. Uh, some have been uh, fantastic, and some have been less than memorable. Um, what did you think of uh, of the, uh, the the Christmas stories that featured during the Matt Smith era? Well, as you said, they sort of uh, vary from fantastic to woeful. Um, I'll start with the woeful one first. Was it the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe? I think was it the one. Yeah, I'm just wondering when the C.S. Lewis uh, uh, estate will sue because that was a blatant ripoff, and it was absolute drivel. It was drivel. I mean, if they haven't lodged their uh, copyright infringements now, it'd be like 20 years later. What happened to poor old men at work and the Down Under song? Just anemic storytelling. No one seemed to give a stuff about it at all. Apart from Matt Smith, who you know no, he can do no wrong, and just just the sucker and ending with a plane lands in the bloody backyard, and it's just you know. I know it's Christmas, but for God's sakes, don't serve as that. I mean, you know, you don't treat your audience like a bunch of drunken, overfed idiots on Christmas Day, which is probably what they are. <laughs> Sounds like mine. <laughs> well, I did drink my father's liquor cabinet dry over the Christmas break. So cheers to that. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I thought, you know, the Doctor, the Widow and the Wardrobe, terrible storytelling. Didn't know what it wanted to do. I, I, I think the, the common thing with the Christmas episodes is you get the first few minutes uh, of Christmas and then, you know, and then you get the story, the actual story, and you've, you've built up no momentum for the first five or ten minutes and then you just land us in, this, in the Christmas story itself. Mm. And I'm sick of snow. I'm sure everyone on the and even now in the northern hemisphere you're you're being you're drowned in sub zero temperatures as as we record this. But that that was a that was a low point for me. Mm. Uh, I I the the high point of the Christmas you know specials uh, I think was a Christmas Carol. Uh, I I really did enjoy it. There was a wonderful performance there by the guest by the guest uh, actor Michael, Michael Gamden. Yes, him. I, I know people. I know the faces that I see in my head, but I can't always put a name to them. So I do apologise. That was just a lovely story, you know. A really, I mean, you know, you can't go wrong when you steal from Charles Dickens. So, still, did I say steal? When you borrow liberally, though he is out of copy. As the French so. say, leverage. <laughs> but it, it felt Christmassy, didn't it? It did. It felt Christmassy. And it was a story well told because he leveraged it from Dickens. Yes, and like a lot of Christmas stories, you there's, I mean, Christmas is a time of you know family and good cheer and all that, but it is a dark time as well. I mean, it is. It is the middle of winter in the Northern Hemisphere. It's the shortest day of the year. Just just rolled by beforehand. 
a lot of people are sad and, and whatever and uh, because you know for family reasons or whatever and apparently suicides climb around that that time so there's some cheerful news for you but um i think that streak of sadness that runs through the story really um bent was to its benefit and it's just not the relentless cheer that sometimes gets rammed down our throats with our throats with christmas stories mm. so i really i i took a lot of out, out of a christmas carol um what did you think of well the other one was the snowman the snowman that was all right. It's hard to remember what I mean. I can obviously remember what that was, what it was about. So uh, I remember watching it and actually sort of enjoying it, not being overly critical towards it. Just uh, was just, just watched it and enjoyed it for what it was. Uh, obviously, with a great intelligence plot line, it was nice to hear that. Uh, obviously, you know, we found out why, what the significance of that was later on. So that's probably where an arc or a piece of information is planted early on and does pay off uh, in some way. Um, but I thought that was uh, that wasn't too bad actually. What about you? Yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it enough. I um, mean, I sat down with my family. I think I mentioned this before. I sat down with my family and they watched it from the beginning to end with me. So, in that sense, it did it did the job. Um, but but like I said, uh, and it, again, it had the Paternoster Gang, which um, I, I don't know. I people like them, I suppose. I find them <laughs> tiresome. You know, a little bit predictable and obvious. Mm. I mean, you know, Strax is going to be funny. Jenny is going to be, you know, earnest, uh, earnest and willing, and uh, Madame Vashra is going to be wise and reptilian. Mm. Is that all they're going to do? I mean, come on, mm. just again, you know, if you want to make a spin-off, just call it a spin-off. Just do it. No, don't do, do it. it. Don't do it. What do you? I mean, what do you think about the whole idea of the Christmas Christmas stories? Do you think um, in the Matt Smith era they they were, you know, overall they they fulfilled their function of you know building a presence for the show uh, over the Christmas period? Yeah, look, they they did, but apart from a Christmas Carol, none of them really felt that Christmassy. It could have been in any story they could have whacked on at Christmas time, really. Well, that's right because I mean, you look at the snowman and it's it's barely Christmassy. It's barely at all. Christmassy. Runaway Bride. Let's just go back even further. Runaway Bride was apart from those. It was a Santa's in. I can't even remember. There was nothing Christmassy about that. So the killer. Yeah. You know, there's no. Apart from the Christmas Carol one, there's been no, I suppose, tangible link to Christmas in, in that sort of traditional way. I think I think living in Australia where the major networks basically shut down new programming over the uh, summer holidays, mm. it's quite warm here in Australia at the moment, um, we're not used to uh, the Northern Hemisphere where more or less their main programming sort of runs over the Christmas period. I mean, you obviously you're essentially snowed in, so you might as well watch quality television. Um, so that sort of the, the sort of Christmas special and that whole ethos or background or you know um, is is alien to to us here down in Australia. So um, it'd be nice for them to move away and use that uh, use that slot for you know a, a different type of story. But I suppose it's only once a year. So at the end of the day, what are you going to do? Actually, the only Christmas uh, episode yeah I watched over the over the break was uh, National Lampoon's uh, Christmas Vacation. So maybe they need to do a Doctor Who equivalent of that. They should. The Doctor and Randy cross <laughs> America. Yes. There, there, there's some strange movie telling in the first one that's just a little bit depraved, <laughs> especially when they, they meet uh, Beverly D'Angelo's cousins. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. That's all kinds of wrong. It's all kind of wrong, yes. If you haven't seen that film, 
Come watch it. Do so. That's actual comedy, people, at the movies, unlike the bilge that's served up these days. It is, actually, yes. Talking about the Christmas uh, episodes moves us on to the time of the Doctor, which we um, haven't really talked about. Uh, we did have a, this is their first opportunity to talk about it since the Christmas, since it's screened, so I'll let you go first, Mark. Well, when I watched it, I actually thought it was okay. I sort of walked away from it, and I started getting slightly more angry towards it. Does that make sense? So there were things in it where, like, the whole Tasha Lem character, that could have been written for River Song. That the whole the whole dynamic of those two was like a River was like River Song. I'm surprised they well they might not have been able to get Alex Kingston in there, uh, in there at all. Um, the whole blowing up Dalek ships with regeneration energy, you know, in the '60s and the '70s, a very quick video video effect. Now it can destroy planets and bloody Dalek spaceships. It just looks. It's just ridiculous. It's not. It's not like I'll quote Doctor Evil, uh, a freaking laser beam. It's just you know. It just looked ridiculous. And that whole thing about giving him the whole regeneration life cycle was just really to for Moffat to be the one to fix it. He, you know, in his uh, in his mind, he couldn't let anybody else do it, so he wants to do it. That's why you know the whole John Hurt character and the whole David Tennant used two bodies and all sort of crap. It was rubbish. What was it? Stolen Earth was that the one when he had? Yes. Yeah. It was said he just used the energy and siphoned it off and then they've just retconned it and said, no, he used the body up. It's like, no, well, the two showrunners are out of sync there. But um, I thought Matt was uh, sensational in it. Uh, but, you know, Moffat just crammed all the uh, story threads from the last three years into 60 minutes and it didn't really work. There was, co- you know, a couple of lines you could, you had to repeat a few times, you know, go back and listen to it because it was buried again in the sound mix. What is Murray Gold doing? I thought he cured himself of that, but I'd lost the first line that Capaldi had. I mean, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. Watched a clip on YouTube or something without that, that actually had that first scene without the music on it and you could hear everything wonderfully. So I don't think it's Murray's fault. I think it's actually that the sound mixes are just... They're just like spinal tap. They're just turning up to 11 all the time. I know, I've look, I've ranted about that before, but um, I thought Matt could have had a better departure, to be honest. I purposely haven't listened to any uh, other Doctor Who podcasts talking about it, actually, because uh, I think I might just get riled up about it. <laughs> so this is uh, my first sort of discussion about it. But um, what did you take away from the time of the Doctor? Did it continue the tradition of crap stories with the word time in it? Um, not not time of the Rani level. I I missed it uh, screened uh, on broadcast in Australia on the night and I watched it in the morning with my daughters um, on repeat. And I was... I, a bit like you, I sort of sat there and was, you know, the bits of it were okay and bits of it were what the... And then in the week afterwards, my anger towards it grew <laughs> and grew and grew. And I was... Not not much gets me angry these days, but for some reason this show does. And I was just, I just you know, moving through the day and, and days and days, just seething about it every time I thought about it because I thought um, it was an insult to Matt Smith in a sense and to the and to the viewers as well uh, an insult to Matt Smith that he wasn't given a good simple story with a straight through line to go out heroically i my hopes were that it would be a bit like Caves of Androzani where Caves of Androzani's real strengths are in the simple story and the great acting that ri- that rides on top of that and and the heroic ending for 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 the fifth doctor, and I I honestly hope that the time of the doctor would do the same for Matt Smith, because he had he'd earned he'd earned the right, he deserved to have the best send off that he could get, 
he had risen above some of the dodgy scripts that we saw in the previous three years. He'd risen above, you know, the split seasons and been saddled with, you know, uh, one of the most irritating companions ever in Amy Pond. He'd risen above all that, and he, I thought he deserved it. And in Time of the Doctor, I didn't think that he got that. I think that he got a story that was slapped together in about five seconds that Moffat, for whatever reason, now in that episode was the time to tie up three years' worth of arcs. Let's do it now. Why couldn't you have been a good storyteller and resolve them properly at the time? Why were people wandering around for three years going, why did the TARDIS explode? What is the crack? You know, what, 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 what's going... Who is Clara? Why does it take three years to get these resolved? So not only do you give Matt Smith the, 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 the send-off that he you know, doesn't deserve, but then you clutter up the story with, with explanations that are just spouted out and expected to be swallowed you know, by the audience. And it is utterly ridiculous to expect that from us. So I, was, I felt bad for Matt Smith. I felt bad for the viewers, you know, the people who, you know, who, who, apart from the general audience who dips in and out, I felt bad for the fans who had lingered on and hoped with, you know, that we'd get a proper denouement for all these threads, which should have been, as I said, resolved at the time that they had risen. So, you know, you get a sense of the, the anger that I'd, I'd felt. I can, I can sense it now, Rob, actually. I thought you said you'd never get angry. <laughs> I can feel the Goodbye. hatred and everything from Skype. And, and that was at the time that I, I know, you know, that was, at, that was in the days after I watched it. And then I watched it again uh, last Sunday morning at about 6.30 because I couldn't sleep. I thought, why can't I sleep? It must be to do with time of the doctor. So I sat down and watched it again. And I felt better. I felt a sense of release. I thought, you know what? Just chill. Just chill. There are, there are some, there's some good stuff in it. Um, the Centauran stuff is rubbish. The whole idea that, you know, battle fleets are, are, are over Trenzalore and that's just, you know, that's stuff out of the RTD and the kitchen sink manual. Makes no sense whatsoever. Mm. Um, the Tasha Lem character is clearly uh, a stand-in for, for River Song. You know, it's a pity, I suppose, if uh, Alex Kingston wasn't available because her, you know, if the Doctor is married, in air quotes, to River Song, why is he being unfaithful to, to her via Tasha Lem? Um, you know... Again, we get these throwaway cameos from Cybermen, you know, boring. Daleks who just rant. I mean, it must be a contractual thing that they have to have the Daleks, you know, appear in, in, in each year. Um, you know, the Angels, again, make a, a, a quick appearance. Uh, the Silence, the Silence, I thought, existed throughout all of human history, but in, in fact, the genetically modified priests makes no bloody sense. <laughs> but, I mean, again, I, I felt... I, I, I did actually enjoy um, General Louise Coleman's performance in this. I thought that you, her in her family situation where, you know, her father who's widowed and this woman who is his new partner, there's a certain amount of, you know, bitterness there, which I, I sort of responded to. I quite enjoyed that. And then her, you know, periodically appearing uh, on Trenzalore uh, and seeing the Doctor aging and, and the, just sort of that dark, that, that, that sadness that was there and then the point where, you know, He's, he's effectively dying. I enjoy that. Matt Smith rises above uh, above the script yet, yet again. I thought the the, uh, the 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 nakedness was completely gratuitous. Gratuitous. I mean, it's just the hallmark of 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 uh, of, um, of uh, Stephen uh, Stephen Moffat just to do that for no good reason. I think no good reason. I can't even remember. Is that forgettable? Unlike you, I thought that the explosive regenerative energy at the or regeneration energy at the end made sense if you're giving. Uh, a time order new set of regenerations that there's going to be an overflow of energy 
I can imagine. I can't imagine what Gallifrey looks like if they're gifting people with it. This, uh, <laughs> At the universe, with a new so- it'd be decimated. Uh, the, a new cycle, because I mean, Gallifrey would be going up, you know, in flames every five minutes. Yeah, I just thought that was completely overblown. And while I suppose Matt Smith's final turn as a as a youthful, you know, a young again doctor was a bit indulgent, it was nowhere near the indulgence that blighted the end of time. I thought that having the young Amy Pond running around uh, the TARDIS. I thought they should have left it at that because that was just a sweet image. Uh, I don't think they really needed to have um, Karen Gillan come back, but they did it, so fair enough. And his final lines were really... They tugged at the heartstrings. I thought that was really emotional. They were really well done. And, you know, hats off to Moffat and, and Smith. And, you know, I actually thought the regeneration... I, I thought the first time I watched the re- regeneration itself was way too perfunctory that, you know, you snap your fingers and suddenly Capaldi is complaining about the colour of his kidneys. But I, on second viewing, I, I appreciated it more. On second viewing, do I think it's a great episode? No, I don't. Do I think it's a proper send-off for Matt Smith? No, I don't. But I've I've come to terms with it much more, and I'm at one with it. I actually liked the last five minutes of it when um, Matt was doing the whole speech about, you know, people keep moving. I thought that was actually really well done. Agreed. The regeneration, it was actually very good because... You know, as you said, at the end of time, went on for 20 minutes and, you know, there's fireworks going. They keep looking at the watches. He gone you make a cup of tea, still regenerating. This, it was <laughs> such a shock. And I think for me, it was actually quite a jarring moment when all of a sudden he was gone and all of a sudden Capaldi's there. So there's no actual time to mourn or anything like that. It's like, oh my God, he's gone already. And I'm hoping that Capaldi, I'm just looking forward to the future. I hope Capaldi's performance is a jarring performance. I think that the last you know Tennant and Smith have I mean they've had their moments but I think we're going to get well I'm hoping we go we get a more alien doctor I mean you know I don't, I don't want well Capaldi you know he's a bit too old for it but he's not going to be the sweetheart to a million 16 year old girls and I, I hope that they they pick up on that and, and and do something much more different than what we've got in the last couple of incarnations because at some times or some points it felt like the Tennant and Smith were... You could swap them in and out of a particular story and you wouldn't notice the difference other than the improbable hair. People say, oh, I need, I want Capaldi to be more alien because when I think of that, I just keep thinking of poor old Colin Baker being ordered to play the Doctor in an alien way and yeah, the way that I mean, was handled. And I know things... That I know they won't... I know time's moved on, but always in the back of my mind, I go, oh, let's be careful with that. Oh no, that's true. But I mean, the show is riding high in the ratings, and it has a lot of love, uh, and 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 it's in the you know credit with with the audience. And uh, unlike uh, Colin Baker, Capaldi is a known quantity to a lot of the audience. So uh, I I think that uh, I mean uh, that's my personal preference that they go down that way. And you know they might start him spiky and they smooth it out towards the end of the first series. But uh, I'm hoping that they do something different because I don't want another. Uh, Matt Smith or David Tennant portrayal. I want, I want something different. You, know, you get a new Doctor, you expect a new p- portrayal, and I'm hoping that they do that. Uh, and I think they will. I think they they're smart enough to be able to, to smart enough to re- realize that they need to do that. Would you have liked Matt to stay on for another year? Yes, I felt really sorry to see him when, when the news came. I thought, um, it it. I think that he just he deserves an extra year because he's given a whole lot to it. And seeing him um, on the. Uh, the live show when they pre-record, you know, you wouldn't really look at the camera mm-hmm. whilst talking about him going. And you, you sort of heard the talk, maybe just be scuttled about that he wanted to stay on and he was sort of, they he was sort of told, no, we're not going to renew your contract or anything like that. Um, and there's some people say, well, you know, he's been there in the lead up to the 50th anniversary. Anything after that would be sort of an anti-climax. But, you know, 
I, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to that. I would have liked to have seen him just stay on for an extra year. Um, and I, I think it's hard to say in, in, you know, in the hard world of you know, t- TV, but he probably deserved to be given that opportunity if he wanted to stay on. I would have liked him to stay on for another year. He was just really nailing it. And I just thought uh, one year uninterrupted and go at the end of that would have been a great way to finish out on it, except I just feel it's a bit uh, slightly truncated and wasn't given the best um, the best uh, exit. And I, I actually felt some emotion realising, well, Matt Smith's not going to be the lead actor in the show anymore, that he, he, he's gone. And as I've said numerous times tonight, um, he gave his all and he, was, he always gave a really good performance. I can't fault him for his performance and his dedication to the show. You know, he was great with the kids and all that sort of thing. I mean, that scene in The Time of the Doctor where he's dancing with, with the children mm. and all that sort of thing. And that, that, I mean, as a father, that struck me, you know, that, that, that cut quite deep. And then seeing all the kids' drawings in his, you know, the Doctor's study uh, in, that, in that building was, you know, really, really affecting. So um, I think, you know, the kids of the show have lost uh, a hero. So I'm not quite sure what they're going to make of uh, Capaldi. But just realising that Matt Smith was going... And that he wouldn't be back uh, unless you know he comes back in some sort of special in in in, in, ten, in years. ten years time. In ten years time, uh, yeah, it was just I was surprised at, at how I felt, but uh, just reflecting on it, um, it's understandable. What do you think his uh, era will be remembered for? What will I think his era will be remembered for? I think some some good storytelling, uh, not necessarily all by Stephen Moffat. Um, I think his uh, Matt Smith's performance is, is the crowning glory of, of of his era. I mean, it has to be. I mean, that the series that his three years is by no means a failure, but he always rose above the, some of the duff material that he got. And when he was given some really good material, um, he just worked some wonderful magic with it. Um, and I think that uh, the longer lasting legacy is the fact that the ratings in the series were sustained. That you know they they didn't really drop off too much once Tenant went because Tenant was phenomenally popular, mm. and there was always there was a bit of worry that the casting an unknown actor would see a real drop off. But yes, there was a drop off, but that could that could be expected. I mean, you couldn't sustain those ratings that that uh, the Tenant was getting, um, and uh, I think he's handing to Capaldi uh, an engaged and energized and an excited uh, base of you know fans and viewers. So I think that I think that's the real legacy that he's he's carried the, the series forward for uh, for four years and hopefully we'll see um, that interest maintained. What about you? I think uh, for me the Matt Smith era uh, really launched the series in the, in the US, for example. It really got some mainstream interest in the program in the US. Uh, he's on Craig Ferguson and, and shows like that. So the pictures of uh, buses in New York having the Doctor Who uh, posters on them. That's it's, un, it's unheard of you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. So, well, definitely 15 years ago it wasn't on. That, that is one of the things uh, he can be proud of. I think he was a fantastic ambassador for the program. Um, he, you know, he was the face of the successful or unsuccessful in some people's eyes uh, celebration of the 50 years, especially the Day of the Doctor special. I'll miss him. You know, I'm, I'm sad to see him go. I hope his career does well. And, uh, you know, having said that, I am looking forward to seeing uh, what Capaldi can do with it. And hopefully, um, you know, Moffat will just oversee one series of Capaldi and then go and let somebody else have a go. Um, and since we've talked about Stephen Moffat, I mean, it's obviously, it's too early to write his uh, epitaph with the show, but... Um... 
What did, what do you think of his three years uh, working with uh, uh, Matt Smith? Uh, frustrating is probably one of the words. <laughs> Look, inconsistent is another one. Again, the success of the series in the US is uh, hand in hand with Matt Smith. Uh, um, you know, RTD and David Tennant, it was starting to get there, but those two together really sort of smashed through that wall and got it going. I know we talked about it before. Some of Moffat's scripts, to me, and story arcs didn't work but um and i think running two shows definitely had an impact but these guys are professionals and uh they don't go in to do a bad job but um sometimes i wish you would try a little bit harder what about you um look i I more or less agree i think uh it was a mistake to concentrate on arcs i think he should have uh should have concentrated more on um uh Instead of uh, sort of trying to develop an arc, just concentrate more on, on getting you know really good consistent scripts out there. I think he went back to the well probably a few too many times in terms of his you know the, the, his usual writing ticks and that sort of thing. Understandably so, I suppose, but you know um, perhaps too many times. I think his main legacy will be in his in casting Matt Smith. Hmm. And uh, in casting Matt Smith, because in Matt Smith, uh, despite my you know my protestations at the time, uh, was was as you said, a wonderful ambassador for the show, uh, and and you know, like you said, they've broken through that wall in the US, and it's get, it's it's for, for for a British program on American you know television, it's it's rating wonderfully, and and it's it's never had a higher profile than uh, than under Matt Smith and and with Stephen Moffat in, uh, in harness with him, so. I uh, and uh, look, it's probably too early to say. I mean, once Matt uh, Moffat is gone and we're able to look back, we'll probably be able to pick out individual episodes that we thought, yeah, he did really well. He, he his his writing here was wonderful, and it gave the the the, uh, the actors um, the opportunity to uh, to really shine. But uh, I think the I think the main blight uh, on his time is just this decision to keep on going with with uh, the arc storytelling. I don't think it's necessary. And I think it, it, it just drags the, the, the whole show down, unfortunately. But um, that's Stephen Moffat for you. So in our last podcast for 2013, not the Freddie Mercury one, the uh, one before that, we announced we had a competition and the prize was to win a DVD copy of Adventure in Time and Space, thanks to our friends at BBC on DVD. Now, we were inundated with entries, and uh, Rob and I have had the uh, Christmas break to sift through those entries, and we've picked three winners. So um, the first one is from, as I, as you can hear me rattling paper in the background, is uh, Jez Waterston. Hello, Jez. Who writes, Hi, lads. I'm very surprised to hear that you don't get feedback for the podcast, but it's certainly no reflection on the quality. I've actually only started listening to podcasts in the last 12 months, and you two are way better than the majority. He says, I live in a country with virtually no Whovians. It is comforting to hear Who-related opinions voiced out loud. I pretty much agree with entirely. I think he's won there already, isn't he, Rob? Well, yeah, I think that's why he won. Yeah. Thanks for that, Jez. We love you, Jez. No, Jez. <laughs> we'll keep going. And, uh, and Jez's uh, top three moments of the 50th anniversary? In reverse order are Tom Baker's curator. I was at the Excel convention on the Friday and had gotten an autograph with Matthew Waterhouse. <laughs> I got a lovely smirk from him, of course you would, uh, when asked to sign my DVD cover for Black Orchid, telling him that he was uh, by far the best thing in that story. The next evening, my sister and I were in the cinema for Day of the Doctor. When it had ended, she was surprisingly grumpy, saying she enjoyed everything about the story except for Tom Baker. I was puzzled at the time, but later, after a night on the booze, 
she finally admitted her reason. She just read Blue Box Boy and had been very offended by Tom Baker's arsehole-ish behaviour towards Matthew Waterhouse. Um, thus, the very appearance of the actor that had sullied her enjoyment of the episode. Uh, why was it a top moment for me? Well, it seemed to show me that, unlike some of the more vocal sections of fandom, I can easily forget any presumptions and preconceptions about those behind the camera and can fully give in to the fiction. It must be awful to be the kind of fan who spends days ranting about Moffat online after every episode. Now, he also then goes on to talk about his uh, number two spot was uh, the missing episodes on the rumour and the recovery of the uh, uh, missing uh, episodes. And his number one was the um, Night of the Doctor. I might just read his Night of the Doctor on out. Sorry, this is going to be a long podcast, this one. I apologise. What can be said about those seven minutes that already hasn't been said for the casual fan? It was very interesting. For an old school fan, it was a connection between classic and new who I'd long dreamt for. For a big Finnish listener, I've meant, it meant the world. I've spent a lot of time and money on big Finnish over the years and felt very frustrated at limited acceptance into canonicity. So that little minicide felt like a massive validation. The Eighth Doctor range absolutely deserved canonicity, his journey having seen more drama, inventiveness and character development than any other Doctor. And in less than 10 seconds, Moffat made it all count. Keep up the good work, guys. Hope you have a super Christmas. I'm looking forward to more podcasts in 2014. Thank you, Jez. Yeah, thanks, Jez. Now, um, I have a uh, uh, the second, uh, second winner is a, a, a lad named Austin from Bonnie Island. Or is that Bonnie Scotland? From Ireland, from anyway. Ireland. Austin's in Ireland. And uh, Austin uh, has gone above and beyond and given us his top five moments of the 50th anniversary. Uh, he felt that they all deserved a mention. So, again, in reverse order, uh, the five-ish Doctor's reboots. Uh, number four is The Night of the Doctor. Number three is An Adventure in Space and Time. Number two is The Day of the Doctor. And number one, unsurprisingly, uh, is The Missing Episodes Returns. Uh, and I'll just uh, just go through um, go through Austin's uh, comments here. So as a continuity and chronology uh, chronology geek, Doctor Who was a lot for me to sink my teeth into. A couple of years ago or so, I started the long journey through Classic Who by picking up the beginning box set. Uh, being absolutely honest, I probably enjoy the extras more than the actual stories, but there is a special and unnameable magic in being able to peek into the past and experience the same piece of television that was beamed into millions of British and some Irish homes so long ago. Of course, I find the whole missing episode phenomenon irresistible, and even though I'm a new fan, I was genuinely moved when the latest find was announced. I'm passionate about film preservation, and actually shed a tear when I heard that a complete copy of Fritz Lang's Metropolis was found a few years ago. I don't, I think it was nearly complete, but anyway, that's by the by. It was Argentina, wasn't it? They found it was in Argentina. So um, let's all. Why isn't um, Phil Morris in Argentina? Probably because the economy is collapsing. He so. probably is there right now. Now, uh, Austin goes on to say, I've been a fan all my life of various different things, mostly in the realms of sci-fi and comedy. And even though we are an obsessive bunch and spend so much of our time assimilating information and cataloging facts, we are ultimately driven by emotion. Uh, none of the stats and graphs and packed DVD shelves would mean a thing if it weren't for those heart-thumping, eye-opening moments that great TV can bring. For what are all of our podcasts and conventions and back issues and bookmarks, if not attempts to recapture and savor that unnameable magic of uh, of uh, being able to uh, watch, you know, classic Doctor Who, I suppose. And he just finishes by saying, "I found an adventure in space and time a real treat. Brilliant performances and a really strong evocation of the era. My wife, who does not share my obsession, thoroughly enjoyed." It is a piece of storytelling in its own right. She also got a kick out of me enthusing and giggling through all the bits that were familiar to me through the DVD supplements. So that's uh, Austin. Thank you very much, Austin, for your thoughts. So much appreciated. Very good. Uh, last one is from... Uh, the, he's called himself a Great Intelligence. Hello there, Mr. Intelligence. 
Well, I mean, anyone who listens to our podcast is definitely uh, possessive of a great intelligence. It starts off with, Dear Doomsday Boys. This sounds like an 80s band, doesn't it? Uh, guys, yes. I wanted to share with you my biggest surprise for the 20th uh, 3rd November weekend. Something that uh, so shook me that I suspect I shall remember it forever. I had the pleasure of attending the London Excel convention. I make no mistake, I had a great time. I managed to get all the photos, merchandise, seal the panels that I wanted. And hey, even got to chat with Big Tom. But when I look back on the 50th, it won't be for the heart-stopping surprise of seeing Tom Baker or Peter Capaldi on the big screen we'll remember the most. Neither will be the delicious McGann Minnesota. Although my heart skips a little fast every time I think of it, or any other great stuff. No, there was a special shock in store for me that I couldn't possibly have spoiled by a fan site, or ruined by the spirit of anticipation. In fact, it took place the night before as I sat in a hotel lobby and somewhat tentatively began chatting to some Doctor Who fans who were staying in London for the celebration. Much to my amazement, with seven or eight of us sat around a large table from all over the world, we share our joys, thrills and hopes for the weekend to come. It had finally arrived. To us, it was like Christmas Eve, the night before the big day. I can't remember too many of their names. Most of us gave our Gallifrey base personas anyway. Uh, we were all shy strangers to one another. But the memory of sharing life with those guys for a couple of hours will stay with me much longer, I suspect, than bumping into Matt Smith or having my picture taken on the TARDIS or even the 50th episode itself. It is said that William Shatner once tried to work out why Star Trek fans kept showing up at conventions. To his amazement, after a little investigation, he discovered that the fans weren't coming primarily to see the actors, but to see each other. On the night that Capaldi was cast as the 12th Doctor, he thanked the viewers and told the British studio audience that everybody made Doctor Who. I thought that was rather stretching it, until I sat in that hotel on the 22nd of November, chatted exotically about recent episode discoveries, thought was into the special, and our wacky theories for Transalore. What did the production team have in store for us? Then I got it. We are the production team, at least as much as anyone I might manage to chat with here at the Excel. Capaldi was right. We all make Doctor Who. So I share with you my greatest discovery of November 2013. Perhaps the episode was spoiled for me, but not by a press leak or a tweet, but by the great company of fellow Doctor Who devotees, for whose company I will gladly have traded almost everything that followed. And as I'm finally made my way up to my hotel room the thought in my mind was simple i don't want to go i think i'll always be saying that great intelligence uh thank you very much for those um for those stories by the way um your dvds will be shipped off to you shortly uh as soon as we announce our next project which is a crowdfunding <laughs> we live so far away from you people no they're on their way now so you uh they should be well by the time this podcast drops uh It'll be there sometime after that. Yes, yeah, so uh, thank you very much for that. Some great, uh, great anecdotes there. Yes, thank you. Yeah, no, I think the common theme is that um, you know the ability of fans to get together and, and enthuse about the show. Um, as we've said many times, uh, uh, our group of friends came together for, for the love of the show, and we've stayed together over many, many years uh, because we've grown uh, closer as friends. And, and without the show, I certainly wouldn't have met uh, th- three quarters of the friends I currently have. So. And that's just demonstrated ably in those uh, in those emails. All right, so Mark and I have talked way, way too much tonight. So we'll leave our uh, our usual f- uh, finishing spiel about what we've been watching for another podcast. Um, so uh, that'll be it for tonight. Uh, what I will uh, do is uh, just make a special appeal to all our listeners. If you've uh, grabbed uh, any of our podcasts off iTunes, if you could just leave a review for us, uh, that ha- helps raise our visibility. Uh, aside from that, if you want to contact us, you can get us on Twitter at uh, 42 to Doomsday, uh, our email account, 
uh, which our three winners of the DVDs made able use of, is um, 42todoomsday at gmail.com. Um, other than that, um, I've been Rob. And I've been Mark. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Welcome everyone to 42 to Doomsday and welcome to 2014. I'm Mark and I'm Rob. Oh. <laughs> <laughs>